We're still in chapter 5. But we're going to be starting around verse 13. Now, in all of these things that we see in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, and all of these lessons of life that I've called them this morning, we've got to remember that we as, a, as human beings are almost incapable of keeping them. The, the outward things, yes, we might not be murderers and we might not be adulterers and we might not be on the outside, but Jesus is going to put this in context that the law is there but it cannot be kept because it's something that has to be kept in the heart. And that work can only be done by the Holy Spirit. So if you feel kind of condemned this morning by what's said, please don't. It's, I'm, I'm trying to encourage you here this morning. And as we get into this, as we, as we look at some of this stuff this morning, we're going to be going into the sort of context of it and the grammar of it and all these other things. And you think, oh, here he goes again. But listen... Grammar and stuff like that is important. <clears throat> let, let me demonstrate it to you. There's, there's just a wee phrase here. Let's eat, Granny. <laughs> Depends how you say it. Depends where you put the punctuation marks as to exactly. It could be, let's eat, Granny. Or let's eat, Granny. You know, and that wee pause just as the comma that you put in to, to make the thing sensible. Otherwise you'd be accused of cannibalism. So, so we have to take into account the grammar and the context of things. Otherwise we lose what Jesus was trying to tell us here. And these are the words of Jesus. These are no Matthew's words. Although he wrote them down, these are what Jesus was speaking about. The Beatitudes that we looked at in the start of the chapter were a lesson on how we come to Christ, that poverty of spirit, that mournfulness over our own sin, that hunger and thirst for righteousness as, as the spirit of the Lord starts to grow in us and we, and we look for, for more and more of them. But the last thing in the Beatitudes, of course, is when we get to that place where we're really motoring for the Lord, where we're going on, the persecution comes. And persecution will always come when we're on the side of the Lord. But the changes that have been brought about in our life by the Spirit of God, as, as, he, as Jesus has, has laid them out in the Beatitudes, he now tells us what this change will bring. And it's not... It's no coincidence that he follows it up immediately by saying at verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You know, what's the greatest accolade that the world can give a person when they talk about them? That guy's the salt of the earth. Just somebody that's just rock solid, that can be relied upon, to, to be honest, to be straightforward, the salt of the earth. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He doesn't say that you will have to become the salt of the earth. When you are a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the rock upon which people will come and pour their troubles out to if we're living our lives the way we should, if we're trying our best to be the people that God wants us to be, we are the salt of the earth. 
Salt in, in the time of Jesus was a very valuable commodity. It was difficult to get. There weren't the sort of evaporation pans and all the rest of the lagoons that they have nowadays where an artificial methods of evaporation is seawater and the, the desalination and the separation and all the rest of it. It was kind of mud flats and, and salt marshes and the salt was quite contaminated and it took quite a skill to get it to a sort of pure sense, the salt. Because being salt, sodium chloride, it's very soluble in water. So you have to be very careful how much water you put in it, otherwise you lost it all. And uh, it became a problem to you. It was very valuable in Jesus' time, and that's why he used the analogy here. You're the salt of the earth. Because you're a valuable addition to this earth. You are the people that God has called. You're the people that God has called to, to take that saltiness to the people around you. And we'll explain that in a minute. But being very valuable, sometimes the soldiers, the Roman soldiers were paid in salt and then they bartered it for the goods that they needed. Hence, the other expression that comes, he's worth his salt. That was where that expression comes from that a soldier who was paid in salt he was worth his salt he was a good soldier he did the things that God wanted that his, his commander wanted him to do so we've got this product this sodium chloride this table salt whatever you want to call it there's probably three things that Jesus was trying to get across here we all know that it's white we use it every day it's pure it, it, the colour of it demonstrates a kind of purity to us. We're never afraid to take salt. Salt never goes out of date. In that sense. I mean, and we'll go on to this because Jesus says if salt loses its saltiness. Salt never loses its saltiness. So what on earth is Jesus talking about here? What, what is he trying to tell us? It's, it's almost as if it's an exaggeration. And we'll see that as we, as we go through some of these things. That Jesus uses this figure of speech called hyperbole. Not to, not to adversely swing you in one direction or the other. Or not to deceive you or be hypocritical. But to show how seriously he takes the situation. How seriously he wants to get the message across to you. So this, this white substance, this salt of the earth that you are. Purity, holiness. But that can't come through the nature of man. That has to be the Spirit of the Lord. That has to be the Spirit of the Lord ministering these beatitudes to you. The hunger and thirst for righteousness. The mercy that you show to people. The pureness of heart. All of that sort of thing. That's what the Spirit of God wants to engender in you. And that's what if He puts it in. What does it become? That fountain of living water that will splash out of you and become a blessing to all around you. Salt's also, as we know, it deals with corruption. Even if you've got a badly infected wound, I wouldn't recommend this to you, but if you've got a badly infected wound and you sprinkle salt on it, it'll clean it. It'll be painful, but it'll clean it. There's nothing worse, isn't there? No, I, I don't know whether, you know, you ever got to a situation where you're, you've, you've ordered a fish supper at the chippy? And uh, just as you're opening the fish supper, you give yourself a wee paper cut in the thing, and then you start lifting the fish and chips, and you go, oh, Jenny! And it, you can't even see the cut, but boy, can you feel the salt as it gets in there and just cleanses. 
And so it's a prevention for infection. And it's also something that will stop it. It's a, it's a, it will bring corruption to a halt. You know, and we see that in the Christian's life. When Christians start to stand up and say, this is no right and that's no right, it, it, it brings people up short. It stops them and says, well, what are you talking about? And, and maybe we should stand more. Maybe we should stand up more. Not in a political sense, but in a moral sense. In the sense that we're now teaching young women in our society that it's alright to have sex at 14 years of age. Because you can go and get an abortion, go to your guidance teacher at school, and they're, they're legally bound to refer you to a doctor for an abortion without your parents' permission. Maybe we should be standing up and saying there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with the morality here. Maybe we should be teaching them that they should wait. Wait to be loved. Wait to be a glory to God. Wait to be a... Instead of up some back alley or in the back seat of a car, that somewhere along the line there's going to be a man that God would bring into your life who will love you and care for you and, and, and be a blessing to you. And by whom you can have an intimate relationship and enjoy it and think how wonderful it is. But the thing that salt also brings, of course, when we talk about fish suppers, is it brings taste. It brings a bit of flavour to the thing. There's nothing worse than a fish supper without salt. I mean, it's just... It's alright, but it's not alright. And yet, it's not lavished with salt. It's just sprinkled. If we put too much on it, it becomes... Signaling to us. And you know, people who, who push themselves too hard, who become the self righteous, the I'm the salt of the earth and you should be doing what I'm doing, they sicken people. You know, well, they sicken me, I don't know about you. <laughs> we need to be people who know how to flavour a person's life without sickening them of it. To be able to introduce Jesus in a way that, is, that, that brings a flavour to them. And, and, and it doesn't put them off. You know, too many times I've seen in the past where somebody gets saved and some well-meaning probably person comes up and says, well, that's it. You can't smoke anymore and you can't drink and you can't go dance and you can't do this. And the guy or the woman thinks, gosh, what have I got myself into here? That's not our job. That's God's job. That process is what we call, or the Bible calls, sanctification. It's a setting apart. God makes the, the list of the things he's going to deal with in your life on a daily basis. If God had asked me to make a list of the things to deal with in my life when I first got saved, there would have been a lot of things at the top, like drinking and swearing and all the rest of it. But the very first thing he dealt with in my life was idolatry, was Freemasonry. And it was a total out of the blue for me. And yet that's what God does. And he brought a flavour to it. He showed me what it was that was wrong. He showed me how to correct it. And then it was up to me to do it. And in that way, in some measure, when I can talk to people who are, who are into Freemasonry, if you want to call it that, I can now give them a flavour of what Christ can do for them. Salt losing its saltiness. And yet, we know that physically salt never loses its saltiness. So what, was, what is Jesus talking about here? 
Well, I kind of researched this a bit. And I found a situation, and it was a situation in Jesus' time when they, they built ovens outside, these kind of beehive type ovens, and they built them on the ground. And to stop the, the, the heat of the fire ruining the ground or being lost into the ground, what they would do is they would put about a four or five inch layer of salt in a trench, in a hole. And then they would build the oven on top of it and the salt became a, an insulator to keep all the heat in the oven and not allow it to go out. Now, I don't know whether you, I don't want you to go into all the chemistry of it, but if you heat salt often enough, it will lose its properties of insulation. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about here. When salt loses its, some of its properties, all, it, all you can do with it is, what do they do? They throw it out, they dig it out the, the trench and they throw it in the ground and just spread it around for people to trample on. Because it's no use to them anymore. And that is what Jesus, that's just a sort of exaggerated, he's looking at, you know, if you lose the qualities of a Christian, if you allow Satan to, to destroy you, if you allow Satan to come back into your life and, and, and to take you to places where you really don't want to go, then the qualities that you had as being the salt of the earth, you're going to lose some of them. You're going to lose most of them. And all you're fit for is to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, you can't do these things, I repeat it again, on your own. This has to be a work of the Spirit in your life, but you have to be willing. The Holy Spirit will not ask you to do anything you don't want to do, and he'll not force you to go anywhere you don't want to go. The unfortunate thing is, as well as the good stuff is the bad stuff, that God will give you the desires of your heart. If your heart truly is towards sinful and evil ways, then God will say, off you go. Do it. If that's what you want, do it. If your heart is towards holiness and godliness and sticking with God, God will say, come, stick with me. I'll help you. I'll be your friend, your comforter, your guide. And then he goes on to say, <clears throat> verse 14, he's called them the, the salt of the earth. And now he says to Christians, you're the light of the world. Now that was a title reserved for himself. I am the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead they put it on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know I can just picture Jesus in Capernaum or the hillside above Capernaum and above him just slightly to the north of him would be Chorazin, the city that was built on the hill. And that would be the city we were referring to because you could see it, it was a landmark. For anybody sailing from south to north in the Sea of Galilee, you could see Chorazin in the distance and say, that's, that's my, if, I, if I sail for there, I'll hit Capernaum. It was almost as if it was a lighthouse on the top of the hill. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It brings people to the right destination. And that's what the Christian is, the light of the world. You are the lighthouses for people. You are the, you are the thing that draws people to the right destination. You are the, the people, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. People that can draw others to Jesus Christ. 
Light brings exposure. You know, how many times do I hear, uh, in fun and in joke, maybe a couple of women talk and say, don't, don't turn the big light on, I don't really want to see what I look like this morning, you know. You know and it's true, you know, and, and people, people who are ashamed or embarrassed of what they look like, they don't want the light turned on. They would rather just dwell in the darkness. And that in some measure is what we were before we were saved. We dwelt in darkness. We would rather dwell in darkness. We may not even have realised it, but that's where we were. We were in a dark stronghold. And yet Jesus brings a light and he says, not only am I the light of the world, but you guys are the light of the world. You know, if I put all these lights off in here and it was dark, and I lit one little candle, it's amazing the light that it would bring. Just one candle power. And the attention that it would get. Everybody's eyes would be drawn just to that one single candle, that one flickering flame. That's all you need to be, guys. Just one candle. Just one flickering flame. You don't need to be anything else. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, you've got to understand what was happening in Jesus' day. Probably the houses, in fact, the houses did only have one window and one door. And it was a small window and a relatively small door. The house was basically dark inside. And it was dark probably for more reasons than one that in the hot summer, uh, it was kind of cool inside and in, in a colder winter it, it kind of held its heat a bit better but the oil lamps that they used were just these little what we would have called the Aladdin's lamp type thing but just with a floating wick in it like a gravy bowl with a floating wick in it and it would be olive oil that was in it and they would light it now I say they would light it I don't know if they've ever tried to light olive oil but it's not very easy it's, no, it's, no hard, it's very hard to do because it's, it's got to be a certain temperature to light. And in these days without matches, it was difficult to light. So once they got their lamps lit, they tended to keep them lit and not put them out. But you couldn't go away and leave your house with a lamp or a lamp or two lit in the house because just... They might fall over, they might start a fire, all the rest of it. So what did they do when they were going out? They had a, 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 a tile or a, a stone in the corner where they would take the lamp, put it in the corner, and they would have this fireproof bowl that they would put over the lamp. And there were a few holes in it just to let the air in and out. But that was how they prevented fire. But Jesus was saying to them, you know, don't worry about preventing fire. We want fire. You know, we want light. Don't go and put your light under a bowl just for safety's sake. If you want safety, you need to trust in me. I want you in fire. I want your light to be seen by other people. I want your light to shine. I want you to bring exposure. You know, when Jesus spoke to these people on that mountainside and to the disciples, these gnarly-faced, wizened fishermen who had worked outside all their days and all the people around them and to come up to them and say you're the salt of the earth you're the light of the world they would be astonished <clears throat> just the same as we should be astonished imagine Jesus giving us that accolade that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world 
Your faith must be lit and it must be shining. People are drawn to the light. And not just friends or brothers, but enemies. Even an enemy in hard times will come to a source of light if they think it could keep them safe. Why do people who are out in the wilderness light fires? They light it for heat, of course they do, but they light it for the light that it gives off because it tends to keep wild animals away. Wolves and bears and things, they they tend not to want to come into the light. They tend to do their hunting in darkness. Being a light, Jesus said here, in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Being a light, how do we show it? We show it in how we behave. How we have to love one another. How we have to be practically outworking these beatitudes. Or how we should be allowing the Holy Spirit to actively outwork these beatitudes in us. It's foreign to us. It's not in human nature to be poor in spirit. It's not in human nature to mourn after your sin. It's not in human nature to be merciful. But it's in the nature of Christ. And if we want to be like him then, these are the things that we must allow him to develop in us. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. <clears throat> you know, again Jesus is using this kind of exaggeration, hyperbole, as a, a, a figure of speech it's called. You know, he says, not one jot or tittle. In other words, the smallest mark on the Hebrew alphabet. And the jots and tittles were there to give a numeric value to the letter. So they used the same characters for counting as they did for writing. So unless you actually knew the document you were reading, you could be reading something that was totally bonkers. Uh, you know, it could be four plus five and it could say blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just they use the same characters so the jots and tittles were there to allow you to use the character to count rather than to, to read and Jesus pushes this to the nth degree this is how important it is that you know not one of these little strokes nothing that would prevent you from reading the thing will even disappear from the law of the the letter of the law until it is fulfilled and he says, not a stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, in verse 19, anyone who sets aside one of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This was a direct uh, rebuke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the time who just took the law and twisted it and moved it around and, and, and became very self-righteous in it. And, uh, and Jesus had no time for it at all. All through, and we'll see all through Matthew as we study through Matthew, that when we see Jesus apparently breaking the law on the Sabbath, it was nothing to do with God's law. It was always to do with man's law. And he just brushed these things aside. Wherever God's law was concerned, 
Jesus kept it to the nth degree. He fulfilled the law for us because the law for all that the law was no matter what part of the law you want to talk about it also always desired a sacrifice if you did this wrong or that wrong or you got this bit right or that bit right you'd either offer a fellowship offering or a peace offering or a, or a sin offering or whatever and, and the law demanded sacrifice Jesus fulfilled the law in that he became the sacrifice the once for all because Christ died once for all for the sin of the world that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life and he says I tell you verse 20 unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven (coughs) excuse me So he gets to the, he comes out and says it openly about the, the Pharisees. And they, these Pharisees would be there. And the teachers of the law would be there. The scribes, and they would be not happy. They would be incensed at what Jesus was saying. But what he was basically saying to them was, you can't just keep the law on the outside. And I've said this before, it has to be a hard thing. It can't just be on the outside. And that's what the Pharisees taught. As long as you were righteous on the outside, it didn't matter what you think. It didn't matter how you thought about people inside. As long as you did it on the outside. And I've said this before. If in this world all we could do was keep the law on the outside, wouldn't it be a much better place? And yet Jesus said it's not enough you have to keep this in your heart and this is where it gets difficult because this is a surrender to God this is a Lord I can't do this I just cannot do it how do I do it how do I get that righteousness self-righteousness is the killer of faith when we're unsure of our position with God or Jesus Christ people resort to religion and self-righteousness when they're not sure the grace of God they say well we better do this, this and this we better keep it just in case get brownie points with God you can't get brownie points with God we're all sinners some of us are saved by grace others are still waiting to be saved by grace there's no righteousness of our own that we can bring to God But it's that which Christ has given us. Paul tells us in his letters to the Romans that that righteousness was taken from Christ and given to us. It was a gift. It was a free gift. It was by grace that you have been saved through faith. Not by works that any man should boast. It's a gift of God. There is nothing, nothing that the Christian can do this morning to add to your salvation. And then there's nothing you can do <coughs> to take away from it. What Jesus is talking about here is once you're saved, you have to open yourself up to the things of God and trust Him to outwork them in your life so that you can live a life where you become the salt of the earth and the, and the light of the world. And then He goes on to explain some of them specifically. He's kind of dealt with the law and saying that I will have fulfilled the law. And he may have been asked some questions at this point in time by the people. Who knows? 
But he says in verse 21, he starts to deal with murder and he says, You have heard it, that it was said to, to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see here as, as he starts off, it, it, it's an escalation in, in what he's trying to tell us here. He starts off by saying that you know, anyone who's, who murders his brother is liable to judgment and that's perfectly true and Jesus is not saying that the act of murder and the thought of murder are the same thing but what he's saying is that you're guilty of both you're just as liable to come under judgment from God you may not come under judgment from the courts and, and, and the man-made courts but when your heart's full of wickedness and badness towards your brother or sister he says you might as well have murdered them because that's what you're guilty of He's not saying by any means that the actual physical act of murder is, is, is less or equal to the thought. But you're guilty of both. They both carry the same penalty in the kingdom of God. And you think, well, how on earth can I stop thinking badly about people at times? Especially some people that are in your face and you think, oh, I could murder you. How many times do we say, if you do that again, I'll kill you? You know, and that's might be a figure of speech, and maybe you mean it. But you know, the Bible tells us that whatever is in a man's heart will eventually come out of his mouth. The way you feel about somebody, the way you think about them, the way you, f you, you, you operate before them, eventually, even although you might try to suppress it, if you think badly of them, eventually it will come out into the open. This has to be a work of God in our lives. It's not that the act is the same as the thought, but it's equally wrong. It's wrong. This word raka, it's a word that, it's more an attitude than it is a word in some measure. It's almost untranslatable, but it's, it's to show a great and deep disdain for somebody. To, to to humiliate them, to, to drag them down, to, as we used to say in Scotland, to leave them without a name, to put them in that place. That's, that's, what it, that's what it means. And Jesus said, you know, if you're going to allow your heart to go in that direction, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So we have to ask the Lord, Lord, do that work in me that takes me away from that place or even when the thoughts begin to conspire against me we take that thought captive and we ask the Holy Spirit to deal with it and he goes on to say therefore if you're offering a gift at verse 23 at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar first go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift the gifts that he's probably talking about are these sacrifices, these offerings, the peace offerings and the fellowship offerings you know and he's saying if your brother or sister has something against you it's not that you have something against them but they have something against you we're the Christians, he says, you need to sort it out it's not a case of leaving it to fester and to mould and to become distorted sort it don't come 
with that attitude before the Lord because all he'll want to do is change your heart and that's what he's trying to say here change your heart towards that person that God might be glorified in your life in Romans 12 he says as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone now everyone might not want to live at peace with you but as a Christian Jesus is saying that's your challenge irrespective of whether it's your fault or their fault we as Christians should be making a difference we should be the salt of the earth and the light of the world we should be the people who are going to say look I don't know what's happened between us but for whatever part there is in me I hope you'll forgive me for it it might not be you only might be responsible for 10% of it but that 10% has caused you to think murderous thoughts when you sort this out the thoughts will sort themselves out it can't, it's hard whoever told you being a Christian is easy is kidding you on this is a hard task in fact when Jesus taught these kind of things to some of the disciples in John a lot of them left him and he said to the twelve he says will you also leave me because this is a hard teaching Settle matters, verse 25, quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, this is just an escalation. This is this kind of exaggeration that Jesus is using to, to demonstrate the seriousness of what's going on here. If you leave things to fester, they just grow worse and worse and worse. And eventually you're going to end up being taken to court by the guy. You know, he uses that as an example of how something can go wrong. Maybe somebody owes you money and you can't pay it back and then instead of sorting it out with the person, you leave it and it festers and then you have to go to court and then you get handed over to the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer and you get put in prison. And it's, Jesus, I'm sure that he would have raised a smile with the people as he, as he started to escalate this thing and to show you that the seriousness of it is if you leave things to fester then they become completely out of control by the end of the situation the Bible enjoins us don't let the sun set in your anger you know that's one of the first things I learned because I had a terrible temper I really did don't let the sun set in your anger now I'm a lot better Hi, getting better and uh, but it is I mean these are not new things to you when you fall out with somebody you fall out with your wife and you fall out uh, when you look back you think what was it what was it about and you go to bed and the two of you are not speaking and one's hanging out that end of the bed and one's hanging out that end of the bed and you get up in the morning and you're still as surly as you were. Why? Because you've never slept. It's just been rolling around in my mind and, and all you've done is justified that you're right. I'm right. I'm not going to say sorry. I'm right. If you let that situation roll on, it can lead to a situation where the whole relationship breaks down and eventually you don't even know where it started. 
And that's what Jesus was saying with us. Settle matters quickly. Otherwise you lose a focus on them. It's not the Christian way to do it. It's not God's way of doing it. There's no love in that. You need to settle it quickly. Don't let the sun set in your anger. I, I have difficulty when people come to me and I, well, they maybe don't come to me, but I've heard them saying things like, "We've not spoken for three weeks," or "I've not spoken to so and so for four months." I think, how can that be? How 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 can that be as a Christian? How can it be? We need to settle this. We need to not let the sun set in your anger. Go and sort it out, says Jesus. And in your anger, do not sin. And as I reiterate, he uses this exaggeration to show how we must settle disputes quickly. Don't let it fester. Otherwise, who knows where it will go. Who knows? I think we're almost... Verse 27, and now he goes on to this... You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better if you lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, the act is actually worse than the thought but we're guilty of both and again Jesus uses this hyperbole this exaggeration I mean does Jesus actually mean that I should pluck my eye out and throw it away or take a cleaver and whack my hand off no I don't believe that that's what Jesus is talking about at all we can't keep the law apart from Christ he is our fulfilment if we love Christ, the law is fulfilled in him. Stay away from situations that entrap you. Temptation is not a sin. Remember that. Temptation will come at you all the time. It's how you react to it that becomes a sin. And this is where we get this exaggeration. When Jesus says, if your eye troubles you, what does your eye do? Your eye sees the lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh. It looks, he's saying to men here, and it can be equally applied to women. You look at somebody lustfully. If that's the case, then the seriousness, the seriousness of it is that you should pluck your eye out and throw it away. That's what Jesus is trying to say. This is really serious. It's not just a, a passing thought. Because once the eye has developed the thought then the hand produces the touch and commits the act. So if your eye is looking at women the wrong way or looking at men the wrong way, then again that's something that we have to ask God. God, train me in this. Show me how to avoid this. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be in a situation where spiritually I have to tear my eyes out or cut my hands off. And so... Unfortunately, within Judea at that time, because of the Roman soldiers, and we'll talk about that next, there's a, there was a lot of adultery going on. And in verse 
31 Jesus said it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery now there's an exaggeration here as well there's a, there's a hyperbole being used here as well and it's not to lessen the fact it's to make sure that we realise just how serious it is Marriage at the time, the Jews' situation in marriage was, according to the law and the Pharisees, there was two schools of thought, uh, Halal, Halal and Shimei uh, were two great rabbis who interpreted the, the Old Testament and the law. And the, the ruling on divorce, one was really a hard line, that divorce was not allowed under any circumstances, uh, virtually. And the other guy, he was saying that you could get a divorce even if your wife burnt your dinner. You know, it was, it was so lax, it was so liberal, it was so just out there. You know, if your wife didn't please you, because if you read Deuteronomy 24, right at the start of the chapter, easy to find, it says that, you know, if your wife's not pleasing to you or does anything unclean, then you've every right to divorce her. It was never God's intention for divorce. God hates divorce. But then again, God hates every sin. There's no a sin that Satan has invented that God doesn't hate. So please don't think if you're sitting here this morning and you've been divorced that you've been picked on or singled out in the kingdom of God. You're not. God hates every sin. It's just sometimes that this sin becomes a bit public because it has to be dealt with through courts and all the other things. So men, the Jewish men, Jewish men would see these women who had been divorced quite nice looking women who had been divorced and they decided oh I would quite fancy marrying her so you burnt my dinner so beat it I'm having her and this was really what Jesus was saying you know you can't just divorce one woman and marry another divorced woman otherwise you cause her to commit adultery it's just not on this is a serious matter it's not something that's flippant it's not something that you can just that you can just please yourself on You've not made my bed right. Here's your certificate of divorce. And that's literally all you have to do. I don't want this woman as my wife anymore. Get it signed by two witnesses and hand it to her and say, right, you're out. It was getting so bad in Jesus' day that young women didn't want to get married. Because they knew that they would be victims within that marriage. They had no say at all. You notice that this is all directed towards men. A woman could not get a divorce for loving her money. Unless the man agreed to it. But a man could do what he liked. The Roman system was such that it used to be, before they adopted the Greek sort of culture, although they had taken over for the Greeks militarily and all the rest of it in the, in the, in the, in the Middle East and Northern Africa and the whole of the Mediterranean basin, they were engulfed by the Greek culture. It was a very important thing, the family, in Roman culture, in early Roman culture. The father was the head of the household, the mother was revered within that household, and it was a very stable society. That's why they came to the power that they did, and that's why they fell away from the power that they did, because they allowed it to go. The Hellenistic, hedonistic attitudes of the Greeks infiltrated their family life, and really... A situation where the Greek, a Greek man would tell you, well, my wife is for sorting out the house and having legitimate children, but that's it. I'll go and have my fun somewhere else. And in the 
temple of Aphrodite in Corinth that Paul encountered. There were thousands of temple prostitutes who came down into the streets every night. And the men of the city went out and had illicit sex with married men and all the rest of it. And this is the background against which Jesus was teaching this. And he wants to make the point that you can't get divorced for any reason. And he says, except for sexual immorality or adultery. Now, I'm going to say this to you that he was trying to show the severity of this. And he was trying to show that I've looked at all the context here I've looked at the grammar I've looked at all the commentaries that are running and the conclusion I come to is that he was not just saying sexual immorality he was saying things as serious as sexual immorality it's not because you burnt your dinner I mean, what do I say as a pastor to a woman who comes to me and says my husband's battering me I'll oh, just go back to him you know you can't get divorced I don't think that's what Jesus would want at all. There has to be. That's a serious situation. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell us about here. You can't get a divorce except for sexual immorality or something as serious as that. We're not talking about, you know, forgetting to put your trousers up or iron your shirt or something, you know. We're talking about real serious issues here. Sexual immorality being the the top of them. Why did he use sexual immorality? Because it was a death sentence. Adultery. If you were caught in adultery, you were put to death. You were stoned. So he couldn't get anything stronger. That's how serious he takes the law in regards to divorce. A battered wife. Sometimes we're left with no option. These men were tempted to divorce for anything and they were marrying divorced women and Jesus was trying to bring home again this this idea of the seriousness of it. God grants divorce but he hates it. But he hates all sin. You know, the problem for me with divorce in some measure is it's maybe not the divorce, it's the remarriage that might be the issue. That in some measure in God's eyes we're still married. You have to look at that for yourself. You have to consider that. I have to take serious issues in people's marriages on, on, on a case-by-case basis because I can't make a judgment on it. I've got to allow God to do the work. I've got to try and put it back together again or help to put it back together. But sometimes it doesn't work. And if I've done the wrong thing in these situations then I have to be answerable to God for that it's a hard teaching so I just thank God that we stand forgiven today for all our sin not just for this one God has found the compassion to forgive us so surely we can find the compassion to forgive each other I was supposed to go on a wee bit before, after that, but I'm, I'm not going to take it any further. We'll, we'll do some of the rest at the next time. But what I wanted to... You know, these are the interpretations. This is the word of the Lord that he brings. And as you can see, he's using this exaggeration 
not to, de- not to deceive us or to put us off, but to show us just how serious these situations are. Just because you don't murder your brother doesn't mean to say you don't have those murderous thoughts and they're just as guilty as actually doing the act is. Adultery is the same. Divorce is the same. So we have to be careful. And we can't do it on our own. It has to be that work of the Holy Spirit in us. It has to be that work of the Holy Spirit that brings those beatitudes to life in our life. And just as we finish, let me read them to you again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, to to do that work in us, Lord. To help us to be a people who are salt of the earth and lights to the world, Lord. Lord, I just pray that, Lord, you just encourage us today as we look at your word, Father. And we see how serious and how how desperate sin is, Lord. That you can show us a way to stay away from it, Lord. To keep ourselves in a place where we don't need to be tempted on a daily basis by sin, Lord, although we seem to be. Lord, help us to cling in close. Help us to stay beside you. Lord, keep us. Teach us, Lord. Teach us not just to pray, but how to love, Lord. How to forgive. How to be a people who truly are salt and light to the earth. So be with us this day, Lord, and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.